Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to Muscle Minds with Dr. Scott Stevenson. I'm Scott McNally. Uh, all of our programming is, of course, brought to you by truenutrition.com. You can use our great code advices to get some savings, and plus, it'll help to support our programming. We are also brought to you by getazoth.com. We have codes for them as well. All that stuff will be in the show notes. Uh, today, Dr. Scott Stevenson and I are going to talk about muscle damage and recovery. Dr. Scott, the floor is yours. What's up, man? How you doing? <sighs> I'm good. I'm good. I was I, I whipped this one up just today, actually, in the like about a half an hour. Okay. So it won't be too detailed. So the big here's kind of the big picture. Like people, are, one of the things that that uh, actually we'll bring we'll start with Brandon Curry. One of the things he he mentioned when on the podcast that I thought was really really cool to get his insight on was the people who can survive at oxygen who are are the best bodybuilders. Genetically speaking, um, people like himself, all the monsters that train over there are the ones that can handle the massive amount of volume that they yeah. make them go through. They just destroy them. Of course, they're doing everything to you know, keep them recovered as best as possible. But he said guys would come in who'd want to train there, right? And they get blasted, get destroyed. Yeah. And I, this would, I mean, I would, I would just keep pushing through. I would survive and do it because... Well, actually, now I probably wouldn't because I realized how stupid it was. But if I just, you know, thought that that was the way, I would do it. Yeah. But I would just overtrain. I did that for literally decades. Probably. I did that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Keeping right. up with Shelby so, Starnes. I just. Yeah. You know. Well, Shelby doesn't do terribly high volume, but. Oh, we um, did uh, three-hour back days. Yeah, that's right. I remember like <laughs> lots of deadlifts. Yeah. Deadlifts were usually so, at the end, but that was uh -huh. after a bunch of other exercises. But hey, it worked for him. That was yeah. the thing: is it worked for him? It works for Brandon Curry. Uh, didn't so much, it wasn't, it wasn't, I mean, I learned a lot from it. I really did. Like it was a very right. important formative part of my training. Brandon Curry, he was, yeah. um, he, he was able to handle that volume. In fact, I had asked him, Scott, uh, on, on that show, uh, you know, what was it that you had learned through training at, at oxygen uh, that was that was that was helpful to you in your training. And he said that in the past, he had always thought about how you needed to take extra time to recover, and the recovery was so important. But he discovered through oxygen that basically he has a unique body type in that he can push and push and push and continue to respond. So he's one of the genetically few gifted guys that have like crazy recoverability, huh? Yeah, I mean that's what he found, and like, and he said that of himself. But he said that he was noticing that with the people who came through there as well, that the ones who survived were the ones who could handle that volume and recover from it. Yeah. So literally, and here's the way I sort of conceptualize this: is the more you can train, the more you provide a stimulus. And that, but that's null and void. It's a moot point if you can't recover from that. So you have to have the recovery resources in order to match and then supersede the insult brought on by the training. Yeah. So, you know, if you can only recover from 10 sets, 12 sets, 15 sets, that those extra sets are just junk volume. And in fact, they can be more than junk volume. They can be dead weight and they can reverse your progress, create an overreaching or an overtraining phenomenon where it's too much you can't recover from it. So the extent to which you can train and make progress is a function of how much you train. So there's a dose response there, but where your dose response basically reaches a, a ceiling effect. So more sets, more sets, more sets. At some point you get your max growth 
and then you have this hormesis effect, which I've talked about before. You keep doing more and more sets, then your adaptation becomes less. Yeah. Because now you're creating such an insult to the muscle that you're not you can't adapt from it. Yeah. Adapt to it. So if you so really in a way, there's going to be genetics of uh, the extent to which you turn on protein synthesis, and that's all over the place, highly variable. Um, the extent to which you have those satellite cells that proliferate themselves, incorporate themselves, and uh, allow more nuclei in the muscle, which is probably important for long-term muscle growth. It's myonuclear domain theory. That um, it's it seems like it's there's some some variability there depending on the circumstances, but that's something you typically see. The 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 people who respond have more nuclei, and they have a better response to the growth factors that bring on the nuclei. And we're going to talk about actually some of those things that are associated with that too in the recovery aspect today. So they, you have the ability to respond to the training, so sensitivity to the training stimulus, but then you also have to have a robustness in terms of recovering from the insult and the injury that's brought on from the training. So you could you could be like someone who has this great sensitivity to the training stimulus, and a great increase in protein synthesis. That's awesome. But if you can't recover from the damage that's brought on by the training, then it, then it doesn't matter. Yeah. Because you're, the damage and the muscle breakdown, which generally goes in parallel with synthesis, but that's really an understudy thing, is could, could overwhelm the, uh, the anabolic effect. So if too much catabolism can outweigh the ana anabolism, and then you're, you're shot. Yeah. It doesn't matter. So... That's one of the things, actually, I was asked this question. I hadn't looked into it enough to give a, a decent answer time when I did Ben Pikulski's podcast, one of the questions he asked. And we know it's all over the place. I've talked about muscle damage and told the story about that, that guy who like basically felt no pain even though the muscle was damaged. So there's the psychological effect of this. Yeah. But there's also, they're starting to figure out now, there are several... There's probably many more, but there's several genes in particular that are involved with the extent to which someone experiences a muscle injury hmm. and, and the, the delayed onset muscle soreness. Okay. So you can kind of think of this as happening in, in two phases. So we know that the big thing about resistance exercise is how much tension you produce. So tension, metabolic stress, muscle damage is thought of maybe something that might have something to do with with training, if you had, if you completely blunt damage, then that's probably not the best thing because there's a remodeling process that goes on. So, if you want to, um, if you wanted to make a house, a modest, meek house, into a mansion, which is kind of what you're wanting to do, you want to make your, you want to make build muscle mansions. We can quote me on that as a little, <laughs> little clip we can pull out. If you want to build the muscle mansions, you're not, you're not going to have a house. It's or a mansion that's made of little rooms like you would find in a small, modest home. Mm. You're going to have um, more myofibrils. They may actually even be bigger, too. You're going to have to tear down some walls in that house mm. in order to enlarge it into what would be a mansion. So there's a lot of breakdown that has to happen in order for the remodeling process to take place Okay. so that you can have a bigger muscle cell. So a lot of things are going on there in terms of the ultrastructure of the muscle cell. So... When you first, uh, when you, the first thing that happens after you train, or what's happening during training is massive amounts of tension that's produced. And we may have talked about before, I think several times, how you produce more tension per unit muscle during lengthening contractions versus shortening contractions, so you can lower more weight than you can lift. 
Mm, yeah. You can take your, um, in fact, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing. You can take like 110, 120% of your, of your max and probably lower that, um, 10 times, even maybe 20 times. Wow. Under control. Wow. Uh, and they do, the, that's what they do in some of these muscle damage studies. They'll take like 100, 110%, 120% of a, of a concentric one rep max, like uh-huh. on a knee extension. So person can lift a hundred pounds yeah. with one leg and then they'll put the pin on 120 and they'll have them do like eight sets of eight negatives only. Wow. Yeah. It's just, it's tremendously damaged. You get a huge effect. Yeah. Some people just get absolutely blasted. Some people don't get nearly as sore. Huh. Um, so there's massive variability there. We, we had, um, I told about the, I talked about the guy who, uh, you know, who basically felt no, but he had some damage, but he didn't feel any pain. Um, we had a, a one situation, this big study we did where there were two guys in the same group who were about the same age. They had the same activity level. In fact, they, they were just runners, like the, no weight training, but they were, they jogged this loop in at university of Georgia near campus. It was like a three mile run. I did it myself many times back then. Mm-hmm. And they did the same loop like three times a week. Like literally it's like they're on the same, you know, recreational running program. And one guy comes in for his two days post test and you know, he was, he experienced some damage, just way experience, but not very much. He was doing just fine. He said, Hey, you know, it's, it's really nice out. Do you mind if I go for a run the next couple of days? And I'm like, nah, nah, probably not. We just want to you know, leave that be. We'll just, you know, we want to let this take its course. Another guy came in who was in his group, same weight. He used the same loads. Everything else was the same on paper. Mm-hmm. And he literally, he, he, he came in and he couldn't even sit down. He had to fall onto the couch we had in there. Wow. Because his quads were so whacked, his legs were just destroyed. Like, I don't. Mean, he was he was doing the kamikaze onto the toilet seat at home. I'm sure. Yeah. Probably yeah. had to have someone lower him there because he was so fucked up. He he missed work. He didn't wow. go to work the next. He like he left work the next day huh. and he didn't go in that day. Wow. Because he was so destroyed. So there's giant variability. We've had people. We had a, a, a study with older folks back in the day, and there was one guy who said it. This was the cool thing about working with older people. They don't complain. Okay. Like they, at least that was my experience. They're very, very hardy. They've been through a lot of shit. Mm. Maybe this is selection bias. We pull in those people, you know, to do these studies or just don't tend to complain. They're not doing it for the money. They're doing it because it's interesting. You know, they're, they're all set up. They're 65, 70 years old. So it's not like they need the cash to go out and drink on the weekends. Like what, what happens with a lot of college students. You know? Right, right. And this guy came in like, how you doing? He's like, he, he was actually a professor um, in another department. Super nice guy. Um, so we went up to the leg extension. We wanted to test his max. And we had used about 100 pounds, I think. And he asked for some help so he could get on the machine. Because he, he couldn't. I think he used his left leg, like the non-dominant leg. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't, like, get onto the machine because he could barely bend his leg. Wow. We barely got his leg down, just flexed to 90 degrees at the knee so that he could test. Te- we could test his max. And it was like... I think he was like 15 pounds. We had to get out the, the partial weights. Wow. Cause he was so weak. Felt horrible. Felt we, we crippled him. We didn't mean to, but so there's that primary insult. The first thing that the, when you're doing, especially eccentrics that load the muscle more per unit muscle, that's why you can lift more than you can lower because the, the muscle produces more force intrinsically during those lowering exercises, huh. the lowering contractions. And the energy demand of those is is minimal. That's why you can take 
a con or a concentric, you can take 20, 10 or 20% more than your concentric max and lower that repeatedly without fatigue. Yeah. Something about the way in which the force is produced is not energetically demanding. You don't get very fatigued. It produces a massive amount of force though. Yeah. So that's a trade off. So that's why eccentrics produce so much damage because hmm. there's so much force. So you have a primary insult that happens there. Literally, you disrupt the uh, the myofibrils, the contractile material in the muscle cell. And if you look down, people talk about sarcomeres all the time. And, and they, if you look down, if you imagine like a, a cylindrical can that's a muscle cell, and the can holds uncooked spaghetti, you could pull out each of those spaghetti strands, and that would be like a myofibril. Okay. If you took the spaghetti strand and looked at it, and you would see this little repeating pattern, a striping or a striation. That's when muscle biologists talk about striations. Okay. They're talking about that. When bodybuilders talk about striations, we're talking about irregularities in the um, the, the fascia, the epimecium of the muscle. Yeah. Um, that has to do with the uh, uh, the way the muscle shaped underneath. So. Um, these myofibrils, then you pull out one spaghetti strand and you see regular patterns, and that has to do with the way the actin and myosin is oriented. So there'll be what's called a Z-line, and then there'll be some actin that, that reaches in the middle of each of these sarcomeres, and then there's a big, uh, it's called a thick filament full of myosin. Huh. What happens during muscle contraction, this is a sliding filament theory, is that those the thick filament interacts with the thin filament made of actin, so the myosin interacts with the actin. And when you have a shortening contraction, the myosin grabs hold of the actin on a binding site, and the magic of the uh, uh, the mechanic, the it's a me energetic mechanical conversion of energy from ATP into force. So the myosin pulls the actin towards the center, and the sarcomeres get shorter. And if you're looking at that spaghetti strand full of sarcomere, sarcomere, sarcomere. All those little sarcomeres get shortened. The whole myofibril gets shortened. So the whole fiber gets shortened. Hmm. That's a concentric one. So all those myofibrils are producing shitloads of force. Um, each one of those sarcomeres is shortening, but there can be some irregularity too. Huh. Um, so you can have you can have some fibers that are being turned on and off. So like when people are shaking during really heavy loads. Uh, like Jordan tends to do that. It's a person I mentioned before. A lot of people do that. So some of those some of those fibers are turning on and turning off repeatedly. So as the muscles lengthening, it's doing this maneuver. Yeah. You can imagine like if you had if those each of those spaghetti strands were like made of rubber, but a, sort of a brittle rubber, and you're going like this as it's lengthening, mm -hmm. you're creating all sorts of mechanical disruption in there. Yeah. Sounds like so. That. Yeah. So one of the things you see. When you look at a muscle under a microscope is if you go back to that sarcomere on either side of the sarcomere, you have something called a Z line, which stands for zwischen, which means between. It's the line between sarcomeres. Zwischenlinie hmm. is a German word. Okay. So that's people, some people don't even maybe know that, but that's because I speak German. So I like to look these things up. So those Z lines get all streamed. They get all smeared. They become irregular because there's disruption there. That's where the. The force is transmitted from sarcomere to sarcomere along the length of a myofibril, and then that connects also to the cell. So stay awake. Yeah. This grogginess. <laughs> so you, I see it. I can see it happening. I, I, well, you're you're you starting gotta, to you lose me. 
you're starting you're starting to lose me here. I'm hanging in there, but it, we're, we're getting there. to a point where okay, okay. So guess what? There's genetic variability in the genes that code for those proteins that hold the sarcomeres okay. in place. Some people just get hit more. Whatever mechanical tension they produce, it gets hit more. So there's there's an ACTN3, which codes for one of those proteins that connects the Z proteins to the actin. People who have the right uh, actin gene are sprinters, and they have lots of type 2 fibers. And those people also tend to have less muscle soreness. So have you ever heard of a really good bodybuilder who had a background as a sprinter or a running back, something like that? Well, I know... Uh... Let's see. I mean, I have heard of that before. I have heard of uh, Dave Palumbo used to do a lot of running, he said, in, in he college. He was an endurance runner. So okay. He's, he's, he's kind of different in that regard. Okay. Um, Dave Henry was a sprinter. Was he? I okay. I just saw Henry with Melvin Anthony. He played running back. Oh, yeah. Um, John Meadows was a champion sprinter, I think, high school, like like state record sprinter. Was he? Okay. Yeah, it's, he's one of his kids is really fast. Um, so there's tons of them. The, the people, the, what are running backs are fast guys that are muscular. They're going to have the right type of actin okay. or actin and uh, protein or the right gene there. So that's a spot where some people just get more fucked up from the primary insult when they get sore. Okay. So, so they, they're going to get for any given amount of reps and sets that you do, they're going to have more mechanical disruption from the very get go. <clears throat> so then what happens, of course, if you're sore right after your workout, you know, you're pr probably screwed. You know, the, things are going to be pretty bad. But most people have a soreness that will peak 24, 48, maybe 72 hours. That's a secondary inflammatory response. Hmm. So throw up that figure that okay. I sent you. Could. Absolutely. So uh, some of this, I suspect people will go back and listen to it again because I throw in a lot of details. But basically, we've got this primary insult, the tension that disrupts the myofibrils and damages the fiber. And then the fiber goes in, or the, the body will go in, and this involves the inflammatory response, which we won't go into. It's talk about details. You be you be you, you literally roll your eyes back in the back of the office. All right, it, that one. I've got it up. This is a it's a clear uh, GIF or GIF, however you say it, file. Or uh -huh. actually, I think a NPEG or whatever. But uh, PN, yeah, it's a PNG clear file, so I can okay. see it. We can see through it. It actually allows me to. I'm behind it right now. So, uh -huh. yeah, nice. but oh, we can right. read it. We can read yeah, it, though. So, so at the top there, um, well, at the very top, I have genetic variants. Um, they change infl inflammation recovery. Okay. And thus, this is the whole idea here, your training approach and potential. So if you're uh -huh. someone who can only train, only recover from so much, then you can only train so hard or with so much volume and produce so much of a training stimulus. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to recover. So the, the at the top of that, that cycle that I've got there, it says training bout, the primary mechanical injury or stress. Yeah. That's from tension. So that is what, if you follow around clockwise there, that's the actin-3 structural protein that I just mentioned that's involved with the act, connecting the actinin or the actin um, of actin and myosin vein to the Z lines. And then you've got secondary inflammation, which is what gives rise to DOMS. So you can see this all sorts of ways. Like part of that is when creatine kinase levels will go up. So sometimes people go in to the uh, the doctor, they get blood work done, their creatine kinase is really high. So you have to ask, when was the last time you trained? 
and they can do an isozyme um, uh, analysis on that. So there's creatine kinase in your heart, there's creatine kinase in lots of tissues, but there's a muscle specific creatine kinase. When this, when the, when you have this inflammation happen, mm -hmm. literally the creatine kinase will leak out of the muscle cell, mm. and it'll just be picked up on depending which which uh, uh, analysis they do. Yeah. The people think, oh gosh, you're having a heart, you've had a heart attack, or you, or you're, or maybe you're having one, because when muscle, when heart cells die, they basically lice the cells open up, and all that creatine kinase gets leaked out into the bloodstream. Oh, but that's a heart specific isoform, yeah, not a muscle specific one. Okay, so that's a way to differentiate that. People go AST and ALT. Those are the, the, what do we call the liver enzymes, the transaminase liver enzymes. Those are found primarily in liver um, uh, because of liver's functions, but those are also found in skeletal muscle. Oh, okay. So, and if you go in and you've, it'll last up to a week actually in one of the particular publications that I've seen. They give it, do a damaging bout, and those enzymes go sky high. AST a little bit higher than ALT when it comes from muscle damage. Okay. For like a week. Huh. You may have to wait a week before you can get those levels down. It's, I almost never see anybody who's shown me blood work, who's been training on a regular basis, who waits, they could wait two or three days. They're almost always above the upper limit in the normal range huh, okay. of both those enzymes. Okay. So you've probably seen that with your own blood work. You're Absolutely. People are like, oh, well, you know, it's because of I'm taking this, that, and the other. And like, don't worry about it so much. But it, it will be there probably all the time. I see this in people who aren't taking anything yeah. because they train. Had a, a friend of mine uh, who was seeing her OBGYN, and she was she didn't do a very good job of communicating things sometimes. So my my friend was concerned about just making sure she knew what was going on. She, whatever I can't remember what the medical issue was, but so will you come with me and just sit with my doctor and ask questions and maybe help me understand what she's saying? And yeah, she got her blood back, blood work back, and I. And the doctor said, I you know I wonder like are you like are you drinking or anything like that might stress your liver? And she's like, no. No, I mean, I quit wine like months ago and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, well, these enzymes are high. And I said, well, it, it, the liver enzymes will be elevated for the reason I just told you. She's like, the liver enzymes, what do you mean? I said, the transaminase enzymes, AST and ALT. And she's like, she's like, no, they won't. I was like, yeah, actually, that, that happens. It's been documented in <laughs> research literature. I mean, this is, I'm a muscle biologist. She's like, but they don't get elevated from training like exercise. And I'm like, yeah, yeah they do. I'll, actually, I'll fax you if you like. I'll fax you the, um, yeah. the paper. And she's like, yeah, whatever. She just totally blew me off. Like, you know what the fuck you're talking about. Yeah. So doctors, what my point was, that was really kind of funny. Was she was like, so like, she's just basically said you're lying. Yeah. Um, yeah. I made it up for some reason, which I don't know why I would to cover, you know, whatever for her drinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you'll see ALT tends to be a little higher than AST when it's alcohol. Oh, yeah, so right. But there's still they'll still will be above the upper upper limit. So that's part of this inflammation. The cells get broken down and the contents leak out. Yes. Question. Let me ask. Yeah. I got a question. So, uh, yeah. for anybody who's listening to this right now, watching this right now, uh, and that they are doing their lab work and they are seeing some elevation, I'm sure you can't give me, you know, in a specific number, but how high might you see this? Let's say a guy who has, you know, tried to take a little time off. He's taken a couple days off the gym before, but you know, he hasn't taken a week off. What's, what would be like an expected elevation from muscle damage versus something that, you know, you might be more concerned about? What I like in people there. So there's a repeated bout effect. Um, I'm going to see if I can find this paper. 
um, a repeated bout effect whereby you train once, you get really sore, you wait two, three days. Actually, you can wait for months and this will persist yeah. where you do the same workout again. You don't get a sore. So when you come back to the gym, if you had a long layoff, you get sore as shit. You don't have to do hardly anything to get sore, but then that goes away. So the same thing happens with these enzymes, like oh. everything that's involved with that, with that, um, repeat about effect, at least in inflama inflammation involved with the muscle injury. Yeah. It's reduced. So it's hard to say if, if the person's really well trained and they've been training and they're on the same training schedule, they might, it might be very small. Okay. What I, what I see most of the time just, and this is just purely quote unquote pseudo clinical because I'm just seeing people's blood work. I'm not analyzing it like an MD would. Right. But I, I know how to read. I was told we were taught how to read it as an acupuncture school, mainly with the idea of this looks weird. Send them to a doctor, refer yeah. them out. But usually like 50%, like if, if the upper range is like 50 or 60, depends on the lab for those enzymes, you might see something 75, 80, okay. 100. Okay. Like twice the upper limit that would be the highest. If it, But if it's changing, that's uh, the thing really to look at a lot of these things. Are they out of range? Yeah. And what can you make? Can you make sense of that? Um, so you might like if someone is not out of range and they've been training and all of a sudden they add in orals or some supplement that taxes their liver. A lot of things can. Like sometimes people are just taking so much shit yeah. that the liver has to process that it will it will cause some damage to the liver cells and you'll see that for that reason. But this is a just a totally normal thing. Let me see if I can pull up. I can probably get you a picture real quick. Um I can find this paper. We can put it up cuz it will go sky high. Um let's see. If you haven't been training? Yeah. Okay. Da, da, da. Yeah, I just figured it would be an interesting kind of side note so that if people oh, yeah. were during their labs, they, they'd have an idea at least of, of how high to expect, you know. Mm -hmm. Now, if your whites of your eyes are turning yellow and you're yeah. in the quadruple digits. Yeah, you're getting jaundice. Yeah, that's a bad thing. Um, that might be something else. Yeah, let's see here. Here we go. It wouldn't take me too long. All right. So here is yeah, so these these values show a normal cutoff. First one is AST. Let me get you this here. I gotta I'll clip it out from my screen capture. All right. And I shall edit it all together so that this is all right. seamless in the final show, guys. If you want to see the edited versions, we uh, we put this show out over at YouTube. It'll be coming out on Friday. Uh, but mm -hmm. we enjoy, you know, doing this with the, the live, the live studio audience here at Facebook. Oh, yeah. So good to have you guys. So those are individual plots, the what I just um, sent. All right, and they uh, they took made some measurements beforehand, and then they did followed them for ten to twelve days. 
some people were still elevated above normal. Let's see here. Yeah. That's AST and here's ALT. Well, we can maybe throw this up too. Is I'll just people have the um, study. All right, I've got your studies you just sent me. I'm gonna grab them right now. Here's Figure One. I'll start with that. That's uh, AST. I think so. Yep. All right. So what were you saying here now? Oh, those each of those lines you can see. There's they've got different. Um, They'll show individuals. Okay. So you can see, like some of the some of the plots don't show nearly the elevation. There's at least a two or three fold variation okay. across individuals. I'll send you this. This last one is just shows people the. It's from the first page, so they can find this if they want to. British Journal of Clinical Pharmacology, Peterson et al. There's some Schweden. So yeah, like one person peaked like six days later. Some other, most people are peaking like four days in this case. Um, you can look up what, what the exercise they did. It was, I think, your typical kind of brutal. But these are, I think, these were, I'm pretty sure these are untrained people. Okay. Um, healthy men, used to moderate physical activity, not including weightlifting. Hmm. Um, from a one-hour-long weightlifting program, what they say. So let's see what it is. 70% of the max weight, so 70, this, these are written by, these are kind of non-exercise physiologists. Mm. Um, table one. Oh, we can show, they have a, oh, that's nice. How, how awesome. Here's what they did. I don't know how many, how many sets they did here of this, but let me, they did uh, one minute's rest between sets, trying to get 12 reps. 12 mm -hmm. reps were not reached, then the weight had to be adjusted. Uh, three sets. Okay, so three sets of each of these exercises. So I'm going to send you this this regime. I think it's... it's uh, yeah, it's full body. So okay. jacked pretty good. So this is this is very novel for these people. You won't see this kind of elevation in people who've been training. If if you do, like you kind of worry that literally there is something going on All right. with their liver. So what should I put up first here? Oh, um, we'll put the uh, the title of the paper. Okay. And then um, the uh, the weightlifting program, I guess. Okay. Just so, quickly, so people can pause and look at that if they like. The title is uh, "Muscular Exercise Can Cause uh, Highly Pathological Liver Function Tests in Healthy Men." Okay. Yeah. And then here's your weightlifting regime. So that was three sets of each of those exercises. Okay. So lat pull downs behind. They went all hardcore. Did behind the neck. Mm-hmm. Cable Old machine school, seated row. Uh, what would Arnold do? <laughs> back raise sit-ups push-ups reverse curls uh, machine side shoulder raise seated leg extension hamstring curl leg press so they did a lot of training here yeah it's a full body you know the full deal but that's okay. what you know what I mean that what you that's what you might do in like gym class where you do three times full body three times a week that's the beginning program you know? yeah yeah three sets of up to 12 they dropped the weight if they couldn't get 12 yeah so 
you have to look closely. The next ones you could put up either the ALT or AST. Okay, I got the ALT. I'll throw that one up first. All right, that's up. Yeah, so that there's a dotted line there. Their units um, were are just you can just look at the dotted line there along the bottom that shows the normal limit okay. given the units they're using there. Wow. But so that's pre they followed them for, you know, took several measurements to get a baseline the day before and then a, a baseline measurement for exercise. And then a day later, you can see like five days later, some people are, are up like it's like their baseline or the upper normal is about 0.7 and some people are up to four. Yeah, that's a lot. So that's, fucking high yeah and the AS, AST you can see that's the next one okay. this is the one like and I, and I, and I said this because I this is what so that that's a seven to four like that's maybe a you know five or six fold increase above the upper limit yeah five to six times the upper limit the AST is Wait, down of like maybe 0.8 and they went up to like 16 was the peak wow at four wow. days yeah, so uh-huh. that's that's a twenty-fold increase above what the upper limit would be. So not an increase above baseline, but just above the upper limit. Okay. When you most people when they get load work done, they you know they have previous values, but they're not doing you know repeated measurements like this. But so you can see, but look at the variability. Like there's on hmm. either of those graphs. There's um, and funny that's interesting. I think that the uh, they numbered the subjects um, and used the same. Uh, indicators you know squares triangles mm-hmm. and it looks like there's like one person maybe it's hard to say like eight is the filled in circles and yeah. they had a very low ast and a very high alt so they might have been drinking but it still <laughs> falls that pattern it still falls that pattern so yeah yeah um yeah. that's really interesting as to why that did that and they they're so blurred out. I can't tell where they were baseline wise. Maybe they were drinking from the pain. <laughs> like, oh my god, I got to dumb this shit with some vodka. Got to dull the so, pain. So you sent this over to yeah. that doctor who said that you were totally making stuff up. Yeah, she, yeah, she was just like she just just totally dismissed me. You know, which was like okay, like I'm just trying to help here. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm here for. Like, but so this is this is good for I think people to know. You know, basically, if you are getting your lab work done. I mean, what what are potential rises that you might see in your ALTSC? But I guess that's kind of an on, on an aside of, of where we were going here. Yeah, but it's an, it's important. I mean, it's a very important information that some people maybe get more out of than what I'm kind of talking about here. Um, that will t- heck, you could even use this if you wanted to, to some degree. You know, muscle soreness and creatine kinase and myoglobin. Um, and you can look at things like the T2 contrast shifts under with an MRI. There's a bunch of different ways you can evaluate the damage that happens in muscle. Hmm. Like MRI relates to how much water goes. And you can actually see like increases in muscle size by like 20% just hmm. from the swelling in the muscle. Yeah. Those things don't perf- – they don't they follow different time courses to some degree depending on the study and the person. Yeah. So someone may, maybe goes in there like, you know what, I'm, I feel like everything's – I'm doing everything the same with my training. I, I don't feel like I'm more sore, but who knows? Maybe they've added curcumin, which has an anti-inflammatory effect, or at least affects the pain perhaps. Some things might have changed, and if they go in and they see that their AL, AST, which is probably a better one, as we can kind of see here, has – tripled yeah 
that might suggest it could be the liver. If you look at the ALT as well, this is just you're not going to diagnose just from this. But it, that would be another supporting piece of information to suggest that you've got greater inflammation and muscle breakdown. Um, if you're doing blood draws on a regular basis, it's like, you know what? At this time, I felt crappy. My strength was poor. I didn't feel very recovered. I felt like I might have been a little more sore than I normally am. And lo and behold, my AST is pretty much steady at this value. And then on this particular, at this measurement, it was three times what it was otherwise. Yeah. Always high because, you know, you get the damage. It's just keeping a high baseline in most people that resistance train. Not everyone, but many people. But it varies tremendously. You can see in these figures, it's all over the friggin' place. Yeah. Hey, what's up, guys? Scott here. I'm going to take a quick commercial break, and then we'll get right back to the programming. If you're listening to this on iTunes, do us a favor. Leave us a good five-star review. That'll help other people to find our shows. Thank you for that. All right, so I'm going to shout out the joint supplements that they have available over at truenutrition.com today. And uh, listen, if you guys didn't know, I mean, most of you probably do, I had a partial tear in my shoulder recently, and it was quite a scare because I thought I wasn't going to be able to continue lifting the way that I enjoy lifting. I don't want that to end. And thankfully, I'm not going to need surgery, but I am going to need to take care of my joints. And this was a wake-up call for me. So I talked to Dante Trudell. It turns out there's only two supplements that will actually rebuild connective tissue. So the first one is hydrolyzed beef collagen, and they offer this through True Nutrition. It's not cheap. We're talking like $25.99 a pound. But listen, each scoop, you get 29 grams of high-quality, high-digesting protein, plus you're rebuilding your connective tissue. So you're using this as a supplement, and you're using this as food, so you can replace some of the protein powder you would have been drinking to offset the cost. I got the unflavored version, and basically there's no taste to this stuff. There's maybe a tiny, tiny aftertaste, but there's basically no taste. And what you can do is you could just mix in some crystal light or mix it with you know an intra-workout that you're using. You could use it at any point of the day. I've been mostly using it either as an intra-workout or I've been mixing it with my pre-workout. I had a little bit of crystal light and I am good to go. The second supplement that I'm using is a product called J-Flex from True Nutrition. And the most important part of this is a supplement called UC2. That's undenatured type 2 cartilage. So with the beef collagen, you get type 1 and type 3. This provides type 2. So these things combined will give you the best chance of restoring connective tissue and keeping your connective tissue strong. Along with that, it also contains glucosamine, chondroitin, MSM, SAMe, you know, things that you would expect to find in a regular joint product. And you get boswala extract and curcumin, both of which are great for inflammation. So if you want to take care of your joints, check this stuff out. And you can use our code ADVICES. That'll get you a little bit of additional savings. And of course, that goes directly to help support our programming. I want to keep lifting the way I want to lift as long as possible. Actually, I'm going to have a hard time getting back to it now, honestly. Oh, it's okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, what I've got there is just the sort of the secondary aspect of muscle injury and soreness. So you have that initial um, insult where the tension causes disruption in the Z lines and the actinomycin get misaligned. And then because you've got damaged tissue, you have an inflammatory response. Okay. And they've identified uh, tumor necrosis factor alpha, I should say alpha in there, and interleukin-6, which are, are basically, they're cytokines, they're, they're chemical messengers between cells that are involved with inflammation. And if you're an, the unlucky sod, um, to some degree, that has these, has the genetics such that you get excess inflammation, 
yeah um that will you'll be someone who also experiences more soreness okay so these are also involved with remodeling so this is this is where paying attention to your soreness and probably kind of creating your own formula for how sore is too sore mm -hmm. is important because as i said before kind of like we're going from the modest house to the muscle mansion right there's some amount of remodeling that has to occur there. And this inflammation also involves breakdown and remodeling of the, of the cells. So TNF and IL-6 have also been implicated as being important for muscle growth and just adaptation. So if you have too much inflammation, though, that doesn't behoove you. That's not, that's not in your favor. Okay. Because you're not recovering properly. You're just staying inflamed. Yeah. You'll see, um, uh, I think it's a tumor necrosis factor... Alpha uh, is involved with strength loss. Okay. Following, um, oh sorry, it's, uh, sorry, actin, uh, sorry, actin three is that's the one that's involved with strength loss. So if you have an actin three, the structural protein that really doesn't do as good a job of keeping those Z lines together and from streaming and and, and breaks down more easily structurally, probably you're going to have less actinomyosin available to produce force because for whatever reason you're at, you're actin-3 being one of them, your uh, actinomycin kiss gets disrupted more so by okay. the actual training. So you experience a greater loss of strength because of that. Same thing can happen here. The greater you're inflamed, the more muscle damage you have after the fact with this inflammation, um, the more it's going to hurt when you go in there and train. Sometimes you go in and you're just too sore. You're like, this is just not a good idea. Yeah. Some people can train through that. You can train through just about anything. But whether it's the right amount of soreness that is tells you you can you can go on, or whether you're so sore, which is just a surrogate, it's not telling you exactly what's going on. But if you're so sore and you maintain that continually, you're never coming around and recovering from the stimulus of the previous training bout. Hmm. You're just staying in a poorly recovered, poorly adapted, or not adapted state, and you just don't grow because hmm. you're training too much or too frequently or both. Yeah. And I've been guilty of this one for many, many years. I, I think, think we all have. You know, I, I find just the people I work except with. Except Brandon. Yeah, except, except Brandon. for Brandon. Except for Brandon. Yeah. No, <laughs> He's I, Mr. Olympia. So there you go. Right. I do. I do think that's the case. I feel like everybody that I work with. And you know what? I heard John Meadows say not too long ago on one of his YouTube videos. He said, you know, I see a lot of people that overtrain in bodybuilding. He was like, I don't know if I've ever seen anyone that undertrains. Yeah. You know, it's I, rare. I think, not, I think not not amongst the people who are good. Yeah, yeah. Well, not I, I think, probably not amongst the people that are like really passionate too. We love being in the gym. Oh, oh. You know. Yeah. People that love I doing think this. Like average people will do that. I think they're they're getting to be sure. now. This is not, and this isn't like it's supposed to be. I'm not picking on this notion directly, but the whole idea of getting effective reps and and volume being the driver of of muscle growth. Yeah has people a lot of times, and I've gotten some crazy message of someone who's doing like 40 sets because more is better in terms <laughs> of volume. Yeah. And like you just obviously can't do 40 all out, you know, nose to the grindstone, no. you know, go for it types of sets. You know this. Um, so there are people I think that are doing so many sets and they're having to sandbag doing those sets. Yeah. So they're not training enough or hard enough, huh. basically. Yeah. Um, so that's the thing that's interesting is, is, I think if let's just say you, you decided to do like tw so this, I'll, I'll step back, step back here. Yeah. Soreness and muscle damage is associated with the secondary 
the primary and the secondary insult. But just because you have muscle damage, just because you have soreness, doesn't mean you're going to grow from that. Hmm. And the clearly obvious example is you take something like running or an endurance bout that you're not used to doing, yeah. that, you, that doesn't produce muscle growth, at least in a substantial amount, after you get used to doing it. And you can still get sore. Yeah. But, you know, you can get sore during endurance exercise, but that doesn't mean it's going to make you grow. So you can get sore doing a bunch of volume where you're leaving three or four or five reps in the tank. And each of those, none of those sets are all that difficult Mm -hmm. and not grow from that very well. You'll be sore. Yeah. So this is where using soreness as your surrogate marker of, am I overtraining, undertraining? You could then you, so then what do you do? Like, Oh, I'm too sore from doing 25 sets. So I'll drop it to 15 sets and you do 15 kind of wimpy sets. You're not that sore. And what you haven't done is created um, an, the proper signal in terms of force or progressive overload to produce mm. more muscle growth. Mm. You're just not training hard enough. So I think that, I think people can do that sometimes if they, if they're too focused on this volume thing mm-hmm. being the driver. Um, because if you take more of like, here's a simple way to say it. this is how I kind of conceptualize it. If you take, um, a subpar set, so you could do three of those sets and it might equate to one all out set mm-hmm. um, and you keep adding volume to of subpar sets like that eventually you're going to get where well, you'll get plenty sore but you're, you don't, you're not going to have you're not going to be able to grow anymore unless you start training harder mm, yeah doing more of those subpar sets eventually is not going to cut the mustard you'll release you'll reach a, a, a law of diminishing returns and a ceiling effect where doing a bunch of subpar sets lots of reps in reserve just won't cut the mustard you have to get stronger in order to get stronger and push the envelope in order to get larger. You're going to have to start training closer to failure yeah. over time. Yeah. So you can get plenty sore from 20 of those sets, I think. But, and some of that has to do with this primary and secondary insult we're talking about. So you're getting sore from all that volume, just like you can get sore from running a bunch. Hmm. That's not the best way to grow. So you can get sore from doing a bunch of weight training. That's relatively easy, but that may not be the best way to grow, at least in the long run. Yeah. It will initially for many people, but eventually the ante is going to have to be upped in terms of force and effort. That makes sense. Yeah. So there are genes for the TNF alpha and interleukin six. And uh, so then I, you have this inflammatory response. You want recovery and repair Mm -hmm. and remodeling. And they've actually found out that there's variations in the gene for insulin like growth factor two. Hmm. People use IGF-1 all the time. That's known to induce myogenesis, and it's uh, it's anabolic, it's sort of the s- similar way that insulin is. There's some, there's some uh, receptor cross receptivity. Mm-hmm. Insulin and IGF-1. So people take too much IGF-1, they'll get hypo because it binds to the insulin receptor to some degree. But insulin-like growth factor two is a little less understood. It's involved, at least to some degree, in myogenesis and embryonic muscle cell development which basically points in the direction of satellite cells hmm. satellite cells are basically undifferentiated stem cells like embryonic cells to some, some degree yeah so variations there also have an effect on how much soreness you experience and how, how well you can recover hmm. too so as you can see like if someone is has the combination then of things like very sensitive to the training stimulus they turn on uh, protein synthesis really well. They're very they have lots of satellite cells, and those growth factors that turn on satellite cell pro- proliferation and differentiation 
are turned on to a very large extent from a training bout. Mm -hmm. They don't get much structural protein breakdown, so they can do lots and lots of sets and accumulate that stimulus that they're already really sensitive to. Their inflammation isn't isn't that bad, and they've got the right kind of IGF-2 gene. So all these things that are involved with repair and remodeling are limited, but they have some of that, of course. You want to completely blunt that. That's what NSAIDs have been shown to do, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. They'll in, inhibit the infl inflammatory response yeah. by, by blocking the, the COX, the cyclooxygenase enzymes. And that's not good. You can actually blunt protein synthesis. You'll, you'll blunt breakdown too, but you also blunt the satellite cell proliferation. You can bring, in many of the studies, you can bring muscle growth to a standstill that way. Mm. Um, but I always talk about there's one study with older folks where the anti-inflammatory is made for better growth. Older folks tend to be more susceptible to injury. Hmm. So they might have tempered the inflammation down to a more optimal level. Okay. That allowed for growth to happen. Wow. Wow. So that points to it's like people will will often ask, like I had a question on Instagram just a few few days ago, and it was like, is one is are three sets to failure better than a rest pause, a triple rest pause set. I think hmm. you meant like what you do in DC training. Yeah. And um, and they just said it that way. And and I said, well, that depend on how many of those sets, you're, like what your overall volume is per workout and what your frequency is. Mm -hmm. So for a lot of people, you're going to get more out of, you're going to have a higher volume in terms of load times reps mm -hmm. workload that you produce by doing three straight sets because you might do you know 10 8 and 7 reps with a given load whereas you do a rest pause set you might get 10 3 and 2 right so you got but you're also going to have more inroads into recovery and less quote unquote effective reps yeah um so for some people the difference between three sets three straight sets and a triple rest pause set might mean that if they try to take um, do three exercises for a given muscle group and do three rest pause sets compared to three straight sets for three exercises three times a week, that might put them too far over the edge for in terms of the straight sets. But the rest pause sets might be something they could recover from. Yeah. Or vice versa, depending on how hard they can train. Um, so how well they execute those. Yeah. But it might not be the case if they uh, if if everything if you shift the volume down now those three sets of straight three straight sets for only two exercises three times a week might be better than the triple rest pause hmm. because you're adjusting the dose of both of those depending on how often you do them and how many of them you do yeah that's going to impact how sore you get you can't recover from doing three exercises in that fashion three times a week but you can recover from um, two exercises in that fashion. One might be better than the other with two exercises, whereas, whereas the flip-flop might be the case with three exercises. Hmm. So frequency and volume and how you do these things are all going to interact, and part of that is simply recovery. More is not better. Better is better. And what's better depends on how much of what you do. Hmm. It doesn't so, give us many answers, though. It, uh you know, it's it, it, it's um, and I understand why, but I would like as a, you know, a podcast to be able to provide something. What can what can we take from this to apply to our training today? 
how do you know how you're progressing? I don't know. How do you know? Well, you weigh yourself, you do skin fold measurements, you look in the mirror, okay. and you look at your strength progression. Okay. So that's a big thing. If, if all the things are equal and you're getting stronger and you're gaining weight and you're not turning into a blob, then you're making progress. Okay. Imagine you're not making much progress. Maybe a rep here or two, but not what you might expect given where you are in your training career. You're not 10 years into it, Yeah. let's say. Or let's say you're, um, uh, you're, you're gaining weight pretty well but you're just not gaining strength the way you would and you're really, really sore. Hmm. Hmm. I might think I've got too much inflammation going. Hmm. I'm not recovering from my training. That's why I'm not getting stronger because the cells aren't getting bigger. I'm not getting more muscle mass. Also, there's a, a whole other aspect of recovery that has to do with your central nervous system, hmm. your endocrine system, your, your, uh, your, your um, immune system as well. Yeah. So that's, I think, the limiter. But you can actually train the muscle too much to some degree. So if it's really, really sore all the time, every time you go in the gym, you're like, you know, touch, you're sore of the touch. You, you try to stretch a little bit. And you're like, oh, Jesus, criminy. You know, I felt like someone, like someone took a knife into the muscle that you're about to train. Yeah. It's too much. Yeah. That, so it's, it's all corroborating evidence. Mm. You don't like look at one thing and say, well, if my, if my um, muscle soreness is below a five, then I'm good. If it's below us, it's above a five. I'm not good. Um, you could be someone who can move, who can make progress at a six. Mm. You might, someone else might not be able to make a progress at a, at a six. They have to drop to a three. Mm. Remember, this is a subjective phenomenon. Like the guy, the kid who like felt no pain, his muscle was destroyed. But when we did the pressure algometry test and pressed on his leg, he's like, that doesn't really hurt because he has those painful experiences in his life. He just blew it off. Yeah. You know, that was nothing for him. So but what people can do is start tuning in. This is kind of the big picture bottom line here is if you think you're doing everything right and you're not sure why you're not progressing in terms of strength and muscle mass, you may be one of those people who I have been, who have you been, a lot of people have been who are training so much that they're doing too much and they're just ignoring the muscle soreness because for them it's, it's immaterial. You can do whatever it takes. But whatever it takes may involve paying closer attention to your body particular the muscle soreness that you feel and the infl inflammation that you're, you're getting hmm. and pairing things back maybe may make sense because hmm. if you don't recover from the stimulus it's a moot point hmm. you have to recover in fact recovery means not just getting back to where you were but getting back to where you were and then some yeah so i mean literally the soreness can last over a week I mean, I've, I've taken like, you know, weeks off or five, six days off and I'll still feel a little sore. Sure. I've always been really, I've been, I think I've, I've always been sore, like all the time when I'm lifting. Okay. So that tells me I have to, I've got to be careful of this more so than a lot of people. And like, for instance, one thing I think a lot of people found, we mentioned this before is when the pandemic hit, hmm. people started training less regularly, mm -hmm. not as hard and a lot of people took breaks and then they started, they, they were a relative breaks just trying to like maintain. They started making progress. Yeah. That was me. Back. It was you. Yeah. yeah. I was, I mean, I was sort of trapped in my RV for a while and I mm. was just training out in that field. I was having a great time. I yeah, was doing load, but I, I, I was make I was, I wasn't trying to like gain a bunch of weight at that time, but mm -hmm. I was, I was, I wasn't having any problem maintaining. That's yeah. for sure. Um, and there's, who was it? Uh, Oh, God, there's a guy, I'm blanking on his name, he's probably watching right now, 
he posted on uh, – he said he, he uh, went back to the gym after training uh, at home for a while, and he lost like 10% of his strength. Yeah. And then it all came back. I think now he's maybe even stronger. Yeah, George White. It was George, yes. Yeah. Mm. So um, a lot of people are probably doing too much. And one way to figure that out is look at, look at the soreness. Mm. And, un- and understand, here's the other thing, is that it's the hardest thing for people to get. But the way I open this talk about why you don't look like a pro is this will also give you some insight as to why you're not playing in the NBA, why you're not an NFL mm. superstar, why you're not a world-level concert pianist, why you're not a genius working for NASA, why you're not doing all these things that people with extraordinary genetics can do. Hmm. You just may be in a situation where you don't have great recovery genetics. It's all over the place. You can see it in that study we've been talking about with ALT and AST. Hmm. If, if, you, if you could see that fact, which may take years to concede, you may actually make progress by training hmm. hard and smarter, but doing less. Yeah, absolutely, you could. So, but yeah, it's all this. These are all bits and pieces. You got to put the whole thing together, you know. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I remember like um, years ago. This is like the one time I kind of, I was talking. I was following Dave's version of DC training with Dante, uh-huh. and I asked asked him a question. He suggested that I, actually, that I do more. Okay. And I didn't think I could actually because I was so sore. Yeah. And that's well, there's a little more to that story, but I was like, I was I figured I'm gonna I'm gonna overtrain because I was getting myself so sore just from doing DC training. Right, right. right. Which funny enough, so many people look at on paper now. They're like, how can that possibly work? <laughs> uh huh. Like in the context of doing 45 sets a week or yeah. 30 sets a week or whatever. Like, how can you get away? Like you're just training like, you know, a couple times every nine days. Like, yeah. You're doing like one rest part. Like that's not even really three sets. Yeah, you know, like you're doing like like you're doing like six sets a week, <laughs> or not even six sets a week. Like, how can that possibly happen? Yeah. Well, it's because you're training really fucking hard, and you're forcing the progression with progressive overload approach. Yeah. So, um, anyway, that's that's kind of what I wanted to talk about today because it's there's a lot there. It's interesting. Um, even anti-inflammatories might be you know something that some people could use. That's what I would love to see. I would love to see a study. Hmm. I'm putting this out there, you know, um, actually working on something with uh, Alan Aragon and Brad Schoenfeld and Guillermo Escalante and Chris Barakat. We're writing a paper, which will come out. Chris mentioned, I think, on his Instagram. And um, maybe I'll I'll ask Brad if he's interested. I would love to see a paper where they look. There's two ways you could do it. You could set some people up on a program that's previously been shown to produce good muscle growth. Mm -hmm. And... And then look at you'd have a control group, and then maybe you have like two other groups that would t- that took NSAIDs in graded dose doses. Mm-hmm. Um, or you, there's a m- million ways you could you could do this. Basically, the question would be experimentally: Are there individuals who get better muscle growth for a given training program if they if they dampen down inflammation? Yeah, yeah. they're basically they're uh, over inflamers. We'll call them now. They're not they're not hyporesponders or non-responders, but they're over-inflamers. Yeah. So you give them small amounts of aspirin, or you know small amounts of NSAIDs, like in this older the study with older folks, and you temper that inflammation, which in their case is excessive for adapting to to uh, resistance exercise as far as muscle hypertrophy goes. Hmm. Can you grow better if you're less sore? Yeah. They'll turn on. And it's interesting, you know, you can, you, you do, like we've talked before about, 
giving megadoses of anti or of uh, antioxidants mm-hmm. like vitamin C and vitamin E, mm-hmm. and that will that will basically counter uh, adaptation exercise because that that free radical stress um, this will, that'll also actually counter muscle soreness too. You can give megadoses of vitamin C and vitamin E, and that will reduce muscle soreness. NAC and acetylcysteine does the same thing. Mm-hmm. So you can, but if you if you take those at times away from the workout. It doesn't seem to have that effect. Yeah. So, and the interesting thing here is, as we showed in that figure that we first put up, is that you have this primary insult, and that sets in motion all sorts of things you can that they measured the, the um, that are transcription factors that turn on muscle growth that correlate with muscle growth. Yeah. But the inflammation takes a while to take take place. So here's my thought: is you train in the morning, let's say. You have that primary insult. You set in motion those transcription factors and the and the muscle growth phenomenon. And then you're if you're a, switch, a person who has too much inflammation, which impairs your recovery, such you can't come back and train sooner or with more volume than than what you have been doing. What if you take an anti-inflammatory after you've already set that anabolism in place and counter the inflammation so you can come back and train earlier? Yeah. It seems like you get the adaptation when you do that with antioxidants as long as you space them away. So I'd love to see a study like that. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, curcumin curcumin is something people could take. It has great health benefits. Curcumin actually has been shown to inhibit muscle, uh, the loss of muscle size. Really? Atrophy. No kidding. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's some mixed stuff. So one of the things that's involved with disuse atrophy, you cast the muscle or you prevent it from, from being used and it shrinks, mm-hmm. is free radical stress. Hmm, okay. So it's all connected. So curcumin could be something, you know, that could be used away from a training bout. Yeah. Maybe. Haven't seen that studied either. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, there are lots of thoughts, you know, but hopefully that makes, does that give you a bottom line, Scott? You're it, looking for like, what take it, home? It gave me the bottom line. Yeah, okay. yeah. I just wanted to try to, to try to tie it all back together. I know, And I know that's kind of sometimes the, the hardest part is to, to, to dumb it down for me. But I appreciate you trying. Well, the thing is, hopefully I did. Did you? I mean, okay. the actin three, you can't do shit about that unless you're going to like you know start doing genetic engineering. Yeah. But the TNF alpha and the IL six, IGF two, that might be tough. But the inflammatory portion of that whole cycle, yes, is something that we can impact. Yeah. By we your... can affect that with with drugs. Yeah. Okay. Or or over the counter supplements. Yeah. Over and, the counter drugs. And through looking at your training. And for looking at your training, yeah. So, so that that's the thing. It'd be, it'd be, but the, the thing that that last sort of solution I came up with is you could keep the training high, yeah, and then and then just kind of counter that inflammatory response. Yeah. First and foremost is probably to get your training on on par. Like more drugs is not necessarily the answer <laughs> that I'm pointing to, right? But it is something that's interesting. Yeah. And there's health benefits from many supplements that tend to have. Even even normal levels of of antioxidants that like you get from vegetables, fruits and vegetables. Sure, not a bad thing to have. Keep those high, like berries. There's all sorts of wonderful antioxidants in berries. So you have like a, you know, a, include some berries in like your with your Greek yogurt the night after you train is your one of your post workout meals. Right, that kind of stuff. It's healthful. You feel good, and who knows, it might help you recover better. Try it out. Yeah. All right. Well, in that case, let's get out of here. For another episode of Muscle Minds with Dr. Scott Stevenson, I'm Scott McNally. Uh, of course, go over to uh, byobbcoach.com. You can check out Scott's book there. We'll have links uh, to the hardcover at Amazon. 
fortitudetraining.net to check out uh, Scott's uh, training plan. And of course, go to our great sponsors, truenutrition.com, as well as getazloth.com. Guys, we'll see you soon. Scott, I love your hair, by the way. Oh, Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I had to throw that in. Thank <laughs> you.